0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the CMYK Talks podcast. My name is Seth Hirschkorn, and it is a delight to be with you on this day. Uh, really quick note, um, we got our Easter gatherings coming up um, here in Billings, Montana at the Art House Cinnamon and Pub. And so if you'd like to join us for that, those are at nine thirty and 11 on Sunday, April 1st. Don't worry, it won't be a joke. You will, we, won't, we won't ghost you. It's not like you're going to show up to an empty building, No April Fool's joke. Just us hanging out at a normal gathering time. But here's the catch: We are only doing morning gatherings, not evening gatherings. So the morning gatherings are at 9:30 and 11, and there will be no evening gathering. All right, that's the only announcement I have for you. We are continuing in this conversation called "Roots, Branches and Fruit: How and Why Christianity came to where it is today. How it got here, why it got here, what happened, the unique circumstances, and granted, this is not an exhaustive podcast talk on um, these things that shaped Christianity. Um, it's really more just a couple of big events that shaped Christianity, because the the whole thing of Christianity is a really, really big um, uh, two thousand year story and narrative. And there's no way that we're talking about all of it in just a couple podcasts. So. Please know that. Um, if anything piques your interest, go read about it. I would encourage that. Um, so, we're in another week where we are examining this thing called the Reformation. The past two weeks, we've talked about Gregory the Great, we talked about the Great Schism, and now we talk about the Great Reformation. All these great things were actually moments where the church <laughs> actually split. So, the Great Reformation. But before we get to the Great Reformation, I have a story to tell you. So one day, a man was walking down a bridge, and he looked a little farther ahead, and he saw another man standing on the railing, seemingly ready to jump. And so the man hurried forward to get to the man standing on the railing, and he says, no, don't jump. God loves you. And the man on the railing looks down at him, and the man on the sidewalk says, do you believe in God? The man on the railing nods his head, and the man on the sidewalk says, me too. He says, are you Jew or are you a Christian? And the man on the railing says, I'm a Christian. The man on the sidewalk says, me too. What franchise? And the man on the railing says, I'm Baptist. The man on the sidewalk says, hey, me too. Are you Northern Baptist or are you Southern Baptist? He asked. The man on the railing responds, I'm Northern Baptist. The man on the sidewalk says, me too. Are you uh, Northern conservative Baptist or are you Northern liberal Baptist. And the man on the railing replies with, I'm Northern Conservative Baptist, which the man on the sidewalk replies, me too. And he says, are you a Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or are you Northern Conservative Reformed Baptist? The man on the railing looks down at him and he says, I'm Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. The man on the sidewalk says, me too. Are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist of the Great Lakes region, or are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist of the Eastern region? The man on the railing says, I'm Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist of the Great Lakes region. The man on the sidewalk says, me too. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist of the Great Lakes region of the Council of 1879, or are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist of the Great Lakes region of the Council of 1912? And the man on the railing gets a smile on his face. That, that for some reason, he's like, I'm not alone. I've, I've got somebody in this with me. <clears throat> he looks down at the man on the sidewalk. He says, I'm Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist of the Great Lakes region of the Council of 1912. And the man on the sidewalk says, Die, heretic! And he pushes him off the railing. Now, my apologies for the spike in volume. But the reason that joke is so funny, that joke that Emo Phillips wrote in 1985, 30 years ago, the reason it's still funny, is because there's a lot of truth to it, that there's a lot of hair splitting and a lot of um, confusion and argument around who's right and who's wrong, and I feel like it makes this thing called Christianity very convoluted at times. And one of the things we can actually point to in the midst of this convoluted mess is we look back at this thing called the Reformation, that put us in this position where a joke written in 1985 about a man on a railing and a man on the sidewalk and all the different things they believe can still ring so true 30 years later and as true as it rang then. And so to understand this thing, the Reformation, and how it got us to where we are today, we actually have to go back further than the Reformation because uh, the Reformation, I guess you could say technically, started in 1517, and we'll get to that when a guy named Martin Luther, um, tacked these ideas to the door of a Catholic church, um, but but to, to truly understand historical perspective and to understand the change that happens, um, we have to go back beyond fifteen behind fifteen seventeen. We got to go back that way. And look at some of the events that laid the groundwork for 1517 and why it was so monumental at the time. And then how all of those events leading up to 1517 actually shape a joke that Emo Phillips writes in 1985. So, in the words of logic, we're going to take it back, take it way back, take it way, way back to the year 1378. 1378. And in 1378, we see this very, very interesting thing happen. And I would encourage you, maybe if you're listening and have access to the internet, you can go Google some of this stuff just to have a timeline in front of you. But I'm just going to give you the short gist of some of these things. Not a full extensive history lesson, so I won't bore you too much today. But this stuff is unbelievably fascinating to me. I love History. I love this stuff. So if you get bored at any time, uh, you can just check out. I get it. I mean, you can go back and listen to last week's again because now it's really good. Or you can wait for next week's podcast. But this history stuff is so good. All right. So we have 1378. When what happens is, for um, what what happens is we have essentially two different people vying for the papal seat in the Catholic Church. Now. The papal seat is the seat that controls the entire church. They are the person with the authority, the final say. They deem what is good and worthy and upright. They say what is right and what is wrong. They are the people, they are the persons, the individual person who is essentially the authority of the entire church. And so in 1378, what happens is we have two people vying for the papal seat, a French pope and an Italian pope. And this is causing some confusion, and it actually causes a split called the, called the West Schism. And what happens is we see another church split because we see two groups of people supporting their um, idea or their person for the papal seat, and we see the church do like a mini split. And so in 1378, we have two popes, a French pope and an Italian pope, vying for the papal seat, throw into the mix a handful of years later that another pope, another Italian pope person, <laughs> throws their name in to be the pope. So um, the problem is all of these groups then recognize their individual guy as the pope. So technically, in the uh, early 1400s, we have three popes. Three. Three. Now, this is not how the Catholic Church was supposed to work. We were supposed to have one person at the front of it leading everything, but in the early 1400s, we have three popes, three people with authority, and and the people have to then look around and go, well, who is the authority? The French pope, the Italian pope, or the other Italian pope? So then, in 1418, we have a council that happens, a council meeting where we get together um, uh, Catholic leadership, uh, actually a large chunk of people in 14, I think it was called like the, the Council of Constance, I, and that, I, mean, I may be off and I don't have that written down, but there's a council in 1418 that decides, no, we got one pope. Like, we just need one, we got one, let's figure out who it is, and it ends up being a person named Martin V. We've got a pope. I'm not sure if it's Martin or Martin, but we got Martin V. He's a pope. The pope that the church identifies like, all right, we got just one pope now we're good, we figured it out. But from 1378 to 1418, what is that? Is that 40 years? We have 40 years there, I think that is. Yeah, 40 years. We have a discussion going on of who's in charge, who has authority. And this authority conversation piece becomes really, really important because for 40 years we have different groups of people looking at different individuals saying they are the one with authority, not your guy, but our guy. So we see this interesting fracturization of the church happen on a small 40-year scale, this thing called the West Schism happening on a much smaller scale than things like the Great Schism that Matt talked about last week, that we have this tiny fracturing of events in the Catholic Church. 1418, just one pope, take a sip of tea, Mm. delicious. So, we fast forward from 1418 to the grand old year of 1440. Does anybody know what happened in 1440? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? Anyone? Oh, well, guess what happened in 1440? In 1440, our friend Gutenberg invents the printing press. Now, why is the printing press such a big deal? You know, I'm an amateur historian, at best, amateur, and... I think there's a lot of important people in human history, but I'd I'd be willing to to throw my two cents in the hat and say, and I'm not the only one with this opinion, but that Gutenberg might be the most important person in human history. Sorry, Jesus. Um, but Gutenberg did something really interesting in 1440 with the printing press because what we now have the opportunity of is not only uh, mass communication, mass ideas. Um, but we have, uh, the opportunity for mass literacy that for the first time, and I think it's important to note here that, um, just because people aren't literate doesn't mean they aren't smart. Um, I think I've heard it said that like, they aren't smart, they just, illiterate people aren't, it doesn't mean that they aren't smart, they just organize their thoughts differently it's a different organization of thoughts. And so now for the first time, we have um, this movement into literacy, which means we have people all having the chance to organize their thoughts similarly, which is very profound, because um, we have the opportunity for, let's say, in the um, European world for Bibles to be distributed, or in other parts of the world, different pieces of science or information or arithmetic like we finally have ideas that can be understood on a grander scale so we got the printing press 1440 this huge thing that happens because we have access to information on a bigger scale now so speaking of that information on a bigger scale, let's fast forward a couple of years to 1453. And what happens in 1453 is we have the fall of Constantinople, which is the center, the capital of the Byzantine Empire. Um, so what happens is the Ottomans um, march on in, um, conquer uh, Constantinople, and uh, the Eastern Orthodox people there, um, essentially, this, the conversation kind of goes something like this. So, hear me out. And it goes, "Hey, listen, uh, run, run the show. That's fine. Can we keep our religion and our ideas?" That's the gist of it. And and uh, the Ottomans look at the Byzantines and go, yeah, keep your religion, your ideas. We're just in charge now. Um, there's a lot of obviously like political, economic, um, land, power things going on at this time. So the Ottomans are like, yep, we, we want the land, we want the space, uh, we we need, we want this area, we want control. But you keep your ideas. And so what happens is, is we then see this influx of Eastern Orthodox thinkers and and people move into uh western europe they start moving that way over to western europe places like italy so think there um they they don't move far (laughs) when you look at a map you're like they didn't move very far but for them that's a long way so we have these ideas moving then over like to italy um, and other places of what is known as uh they move west into europe um, and, and so we see this influx of ideas that we'd never seen before, or they'd never seen before, not we, they. Um, these, these ideas of uh, literature and mythology and arithmetic and, and uh, things of the scientific nature and things of, uh, yeah, so, so, so think about all these new ideas then get taken out of um, Constantinople and, and out of the Byzantine Empire and in, input into the Ottoman Empire and other areas. And so we have this influx of ideas, and so around this time in the 1400s, we also have the, the, the early creations of this thing called the Renaissance, which is this huge um, uh, blow-up of art and science and beauty and conversation, and, and part of that is from the fall of Constantinople and these new ideas coming in. So we've got new ideas coming in, we've got a printing press that is making them, and on top of that, we've got a church that is asking the question of who's in charge. So we've got this medieval Europe that was kind of cocooned away from thoughts for the, for the medieval years, now being exposed to new ideas, questions about authority, and access to information and literacy. It is truly a, a phenomenon going on in Europe. Now, a quick side note: This also happens to be uh, piggybacking something that happened about 400 years before the for- fall of Constantinople. It was the fall of this place called Cordoba, which was in Spain. Um, there was a group of people called the Moors, the Moorish people, and they had they were heavily Islamic influenced uh, Islamic peoples, and, uh, when the Christians decided to take back Spain 400 years before this, it pushed the Moors and the Moorish people out and took their ideas with them into other parts of Europe. So we also now have this influx over time, not exactly the same time, but this influx of other ideas, like Islamic ideas and arithmetic and literature and science, and so all these other ideas are coming into, and so we have this hot, this hot spot that is Europe, um, that is, um, almost rebranding itself with new ideas and questions about authority. So then we fast forward a few more years from 1453 and we get to 1492. And what happened in 1492, class? Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Yeah, very good, guys. I'm glad you listened in class. But that's what happened. Columbus sails the ocean blue, and he's sailing westward. And so the church at the time is the hub not only for theology, but also science and also thought. And so there were thoughts and ideas about Columbus sailing sailing westward and like, what if he falls off the edge of the earth? Now, I like to believe not everyone thought that. Um, There's still some people today who think the earth is flat, and that's totally cool. Flat with an ice wall around it, and I'd love to have a conversation with you. Let's grab a beer. Let's talk about that. Um, I just want to know what you're thinking, because I'm I'm not there. Um, And I don't mean that to be belittling. I, I got a buddy who's a flat earther, but he's haven't talked about it yet, so... If you're out there, let's chat. So anyway, there's people thinking like his Columbus is gonna fall off the edge of the earth, but then they also have this idea that if he does sail west, he's gonna land on the other side of the continent that they're familiar with, in India, or in what we would call Asia now. So he sails west, and he ends up hitting this landmass called North and South America, that's what we call it today. And so this rattles things up a little bit because number one, the known world gets a lot bigger. And number two, there's a question of, oh gosh, well maybe we didn't know what we thought we knew about the Earth and its shape and its and and its layout. And so there are all these questions then swirling around. Well, they thought they knew, but they don't know. And so is there like, can we trust them in that? And just it, things get tense. And so you add to it. Then fast forward just a few more years to 1514. This guy named Copernicus who he theorizes that maybe the earth revolves around the sun instead of the sun revolving around the earth. Now, think about this not only from a scientific standpoint, because like I said, the church was this hub not only for um, thought and theology, but science also, and those two things were deeply tied together. So we have this thought that everything revolves around the earth at the time, that we are, that, you know, the earth is the center of creation and the church holds that thought and then this guy theorizes that maybe that's not how it goes maybe the earth revolves around the sun but then what does that do to then when you when you shatter the science like that what does it do to their theology so if the earth and all creation are at the center of god's plan and design at the time and the thought you know there was a thought like hell was below below humans in in the depths of the earth and the heavens were above And uh, the Earth, and therefore God was accessible in some way. So, if you switch that up, that the Earth isn't the center of everything; instead, the Earth is just swirling in this midst of stars and sky, that messes with a lot of thought. It's very, very fascinating. And that that history lesson then leads us to fifteen fourteen or fifteen seventeen. So we've got new ideas. We've got problems with authority. We've got access to information. Those new ideas can be printed and distributed, and we end up in 1517 where Martin Luther then tacks his 95 theses, his 95 um, frustrations with the Catholic Church to the, to the door of a Catholic Church or the town he lives in. And this is the next branch of, branch of Christianity starting that bears some fruit because the the big thing he does is he, he, he tacks these 95 theses to the door, his grievances, and, and if you'd like to go read those, you can. They're, they're really interesting. He's just got some issues with how the Catholic Church runs things, and he actually has some issues with their authority, and there's a question constantly—it's weird, there's just this question constantly throughout It seems like Christian church history of who has the authority, and we see Luther challenging it in a big way, and this causes some problems, because by 1521, Luther is effectively kicked out of and excommunicated from the Catholic Church and out doing his own thing, and we we see Lutheranism blossom and flourish. But what these 95 theses do is they show the rest of the world that we can then challenge authority. And if we can challenge the biggest religious authority, what does that mean for us? And so another condensed uh, piece of the history, two major things come out of Luther challenging authority with his 95 Theses on the door of the Church. Two major things, and those are sola scriptura and the priesthood of all believers. Now, sola scriptura is this idea that Scripture and Scripture alone hold authority. So the Word of God alone is authority, that the, the authority shifts from flesh and bone of the Pope to, to ink on the page the Word of God. The, the authority then flips into the book. Now, you pair this idea—there were other ideas too, that's a big one—but you pair this idea with another big idea called the priesthood of all believers, which means anyone that believes in the, the Jesus of the Bible, the God of the Bible, is therefore an authoritative figure, and they are a priestly figure for the world. And here we have this question of who's in charge really ramp up and build. Who's in charge? Well, it seems like what Luther um, what, what Luther was creating was a, a place of freedom for people to be out from under the thumb of a flesh and bone ruler and authoritative figure actually turned into a potential monster for us today. So think about this. If we have Sola Scriptura, the, the Word of God alone, and the priest of all believers, that everyone's a priest, we start seeing these ideas swirl around Luther with other pastors and other thinkers starting to create their own ideas of who God is, and guess what? They have authority. Because of what Luther did, they have authority. Their opinion matters, and so we see these spinoffs of ideas of guys like John Calvin. Go read his work. It's really f- fundamental, foundational work. But we have all these people, Luther and Calvin and so many others, that start writing and thinking and gaining followers because guess what? Their ideas are good and they have authority because of Scripture and their priesthood. So what happens then is over time this starts to evolve not only in the church but outside of the church as well, that this authority thing gets taken steps and steps and and ripples outward so that we see authority shift to places beyond the church. For example, in the 1800s, we see a guy named Charles Darwin come along and theorize that maybe the earth isn't just six days old, and maybe humans weren't created from the hand of God, and maybe that there is this evolutionary process by which we came. Fascinating, but guess what? Is it denounced quickly by the church? Yes, it is. But because of this idea... Of authority of the individual rippling outward beyond just the scripture and beyond just the church or, or the priesthood of the believer, a guy named Darwin gets some traction with this idea, and it becomes a profound thought. And guess what? His friend Gutenberg, from a from a couple hundred years before, did this thing called the printing press. So now the speed, the origin of species, can find its way into the hands of whoever desires to read it, and we have authority rippling outward to whoever whoever wants it now this is not something i think luther intended but it's 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 what happened um that's just one example by the way charles darwin there's there's many other examples like that where we see the authority ripple outward and we get to a place where we are today where the question is who is then in authority Who has authority? That we look at this church history, we look at Martin Luther, we look at the history of ideas, a very condensed history, short history, um, but we get to this place of who has authority. And I think the response to that is that, well, we all do. That's what's so interesting about all of this is I think that we all now are in a place of authority. That because what Luther did is sola scriptura and the priest of all believers, now we saw that ripple outward from beyond, just the, from beyond just the scripture and beyond just the believer, we now see ourselves in a position 500 years later where we all have a voice, we all have authority, we all have an opinion, we can all gain followers if we want. We all are in the unique position of authority. It's weird. Honestly, (laughs) I have authority, you have authority. And the question is, what do we do with it? Here's a good example. Do we just trust others with authority? Okay, so check this out. There's a guy named John Wesley. John Wesley was the guy who created the Wesleyan Church, um, thinker from the 1700s. By the way, at the same time of the Enlightenment, so we have a lot of really beautiful ideas popping out of the Enlightenment, logic and reason and science, all this really cool stuff out of the Enlightenment. And so we've got this Christian thinker named John Wesley out of the Enlightenment. And so someone went back and read his work and realized that there's there's a flow and a pattern to his work. It's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And so if you would for a moment, imagine a table in front of you. And that table, let's say it has four legs, a table with four legs. And the purpose of a table is to hold up and support the things on top of it. And so what John Wesley, his work provided for people, is this thing called the Wesleyan quadrilateral, where there are four legs holding up this table. There's scripture, there's tradition, there's reason, and there's experience. And so John Wesley has this authority for people to follow. But what's interesting is I can look at his authority and completely disregard it. And I think this adds to maybe the problem that we face today. This maybe adds to the, the joke that Emo Phillips wrote. For example, let's look at this. we quick, at the Wesleyan quadrilateral. So let's take scripture, for example. Scripture, that is the most important leg of this table, and it has the most authority. Because Wesley also believed in sola scriptura, but he also believed in other legs helping hold up the table. So we have this thing called scripture, right? Well, let's just say, for example, there's a conversation in Christianity. Not there's a conversation in Christianity that is, you know, the role of women. Now, I might be touching on some sensitive topics, but just hear me out. The let's say the the, there's there's two. Huge uh, lines of thought for the roles of women in the church and the household, and that's the or mostly you know both of those things. It's the complementarian view that men are at the top; they are at the the head of the hierarchy, just like Christ is the head of the church, and women and children fall underneath that and they submit to that. Now, I'm I'm vastly overcomplicating this, so I don't mean to offend anyone because they also believe that women have gifts and things that contribute, and yeah. But but for the for the sake of this conversation, there's complementarian view. And there's scriptures in the Bible like uh, Paul saying, I do not permit a woman to teach. She must be silent. Um, he, Paul, Paul talks a couple times about the restrictions of women um, in, in a teaching role or a leadership role. And, and, and this supports the complementarian view. But then Paul, the same guy, also says in the book of, I believe it's Ephesians or Galatians, please forgive me for not knowing exactly, he says, in Christ there's no uh, Greek nor Jew, no free no nor slave, no man nor woman, like he takes all of these examples and says, hey, in Christ, there is none of that. Now, a lot of people would argue, uh, well, those verses are talking about different things in their context. That might be fair. That might be a fair argument. But guess what? We have two pieces of scripture that seemingly oppose one another. And so if scripture has authority, and we, if scripture has it sorry if we have authority and and scripture is a piece of this authority we can look at scripture and determine whatever we want to out of it because we have authority. And so that makes one of the legs of this quadrilateral a little shaky. The next um the, the next one tradition this idea of tradition. Um so John Wesley is looking at 1700 years at his point of church tradition. But one of the things we notice out of this is that Church tradition gets a little muddled. I've got this big long thing I really want to read to you from a guy named James Smith. Um, he's a he's a guy who I really like, um, who's talked about kind of like modern times out of the history of old times, and it's a huge chunk. But I'm going to save your ears from that, honestly, and I'm just going to um, uh, shorten it up. Basically, when it comes to tradition, what James Taylor and Charles, what James Smith and Charles Taylor talk about is. During the Reform Movement, we saw a split between the pastoral workers, the monks, the pastoral workers, and the lay people, and there was this disequilibrium, and what happened with the Reform is it basically took all the sacred space of the church and of the pastoral workers and moved it outside the walls of the church. That what was once sacred and set apart in a specific area and specific vocation was now spilled out for all people to, to experience. So this solo Scriptura and Priesthood of All Believers meant that everywhere we go and everything we do is sacred work. So now every single person that isn't a pastor also has sacred work to do. And this caused something interesting because what was once very traditional and spiritual i.e. work inside the church, worship services, going to church, service, you know, everything around the church now spilled out outside of the church. So we have tradition getting shaken up, that what's traditional and sacred is no longer contained inside the walls of the monastery. Instead, the tradition and sacred spaces are now spilled outside. So in this quadrilateral, tradition is one of the legs, and guess what? Tradition is however we choose to define it now, because it's outside the walls of the monastery after the Reformation. Another leg of the Wesleyan quadrilateral is reason, and and here's my, here's my little bit of issue with the idea of reason. So John Wesley comes out of the 1700s, and we have reason and thought, and it's a huge part of people, like his, it's a huge part of his shaping of theology, and, but I don't know if you've noticed this, but when we look around ourselves in conversations today i notice this is anybody who has even a smidgen of reason in their argument automatically thinks they're right that, that literally you could have a sentence of reason in a huge argument or monologue about your ideas and therefore you think you're right because your idea contains reason and so we're in this age where we're all looking for reason and logic to be the thing that support our case, but, oh gosh, go go Google any debate between a Christian atheist, and they both have reason on their side of the argument, and they both think they're right. And for this reason, I don't think, for this reason, for this idea this conversation makes me think that reason is no longer a good leg to hold up the table either. So three of the four legs are really shaky now, right? Scripture's shaky. Tradition is shaky. Reason itself is shaky. And now we get to the last leg, which is experience. Okay, so the last leg of the table, experience. This gets weird too, because guess what? We all have different experiences that shape who we are and what we think. So let's stay in the line of the Christian tradition. I have a friend who talks to God. Now, hear me out. Does that sound weird? Of course it sounds weird. I don't think I've ever talked to God. I don't think God and I have ever had a conversation, and that's okay. I'm not upset by that, but I have a friend who I'm pretty sure he talks to God. I've got my ideas and thoughts around that and my experiences with him, but I watch a guy who I think talks to God, I know it sounds so goofy, I know, just hear me out. I think he talks to God, but I don't. And therefore, we have very different experiences that shape our ideas about God. And so we have this Wesleyan quadrilateral, this table that holds up theological thought based on scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, and guess what? I just got to split hairs over all of those because I have authority. And you have authority. And what do we do? That if, if Luther nailing 95 theses to the door of a Catholic church was meant to make us free from the burden of authority, <laughs> well, now we're in a whole other situation of the burden of authority, because what if we all have it? because we're all allowed to shape our own ideas about God. We're all allowed to shape our own ideas about life. We all have this permission to do that. And so what do we do? This is tough for me, because I don't know if I have an answer, but I've got an idea. Because I don't know how to solve the authority problem. I don't know how if it's meant to be given back to one or a group, or I, I don't know, but we're just at this unique place where we all have it. And if we all have it, what do we do with it? And at least for me, knowing that I have it and knowing that you have it, this is the place that I have to arrive at personally. And you can you can agree with this or call it BS. But in in the book of John, so John's chapters 14, 15, 16, Jesus is talking to his followers and giving them like essentially last the last directions he's giving them before he goes to die. Now, the way the story unfolds is Jesus talks to them, and then he goes to die, and then he comes back. Now, as a narrative unfolds like that, the people he's talking to before he dies don't know he's coming back, so they're probably going to be a little traumatized. That's the reality. So John 14, 15, 16, he gives them these, like, last words. They don't really know that, but he gives it to them. And then before he leaves, instead of giving them more directions, he prays for them simple prayer. Maybe not simple, but he prays for them. And these are his words in John chapter 17 verses 20 through 23. He says, I do not ask the, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, the other people that may become to join Christianity, right? In verse 21, he says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me the glory that you have given me i have given to them and they be that they may be one as we are one i and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know you sent me and love them even as you loved me so before jesus hands authority to the people who follow him which he does in in the gospels if you go read that authority in this movement Praise for unity. And I wonder, this is all I can wonder in the midst of all of this, that we have this branch of Christianity called the Reformation, and there's some good fruit. There's some good fruit, but there's also some bad fruit. The good fruit is we have this freedom to explore who God is, and the bad fruit is, oh my gosh, tension is created because we all technically have authority. And the prayer, the prayer then and the hope and the wonder the, the prayer from Jesus and the wonder and hope for me is how do we take this authority, our authority, and be willing to put it on the back burner for a minute to look someone else in the eye and say, what do you think? What, what do you believe? What does your authority say? That we could put our own ideas on hold for the sake of another, that we could somehow get along this this is for me the challenge of a a person who is free to think about God who has authority to think about God however I want the challenge for me is to put my ideas on hold to look another person in the eye and listen because the prayer that Jesus leaves them is a prayer of unity of oneness that they would get along And so in the midst of this giant stinking history lesson that you listened to today, and this claim that you and I have authority, my question for you is this, what's it going to take for you to look your family member, your coworker, your friend, or a stranger in the eyes and say, what do you think? Tell me what you think. And let's see if we can get along around this idea of unification and unity. I hope that brings you some good things to think about this week. I know I went long, nerded too hard over history, so forgive me in that. Um, but I hope, I hope you have a chance this week to look someone else in the eyes and go, hey, what do you think? What does your authority say? And maybe that would give us a chance to maybe find out what this oneness Jesus was talking about. Sure do love you guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of this community. Um, You guys have a good one. Bye.